The Bible's open at John 11, and uh, it's our third week in this wonderful chapter, but I'll pray as we come to God's Word this morning. Lord God, we know the promise in your Word, that you give grace to the humble. I just pray, Father, that none of us would be among the proud this morning. I pray especially that you would make me humble, that I may decrease and Christ might increase. Holy Spirit, give me the words to speak well of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, in whose wonderful, beautiful name I pray. Amen. Amen. So John 11 and verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, Caiaphas who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with his, the disciples. Now the Passover of the, of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now... The chief priests and Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so they might arrest him. The Gospel of John is all about faith. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The Gospel of John is about belief, about faith. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's the end of the book, believing in his name. So John's Gospel, it from start to finish, is about faith. It's probably written to new believers or even those considering Christ, that they might have faith, that they might believe in Jesus. So the Gospel is about belief, but it's also about unbelief. And throughout John's Gospel especially, we see people divided on account of Jesus. It was that way in the first century, it remains this way in the 21st century, it will always be this way. Jesus is the occasion for division. 
There is a case coming this week before the courts. The Christian Institute are supporting it of a church in Stirling in Scotland who have been ejected from their building simply because of believing the Bible. Jesus is the dividing line. We should pray for that, by the way. Pray for the Christian Institute. Pray for the church in Stirling. Jesus is the occasion for division. People will not, have not, do not agree about Jesus. Just look at John's Gospel, what John's Gospel says. John 7, verse 40. It says, this, some, some said this is the prophet, others said this is the Christ, others said it's not the Christ to come from Galilee. So there was a division among the people over him. John 10, there was again a division among the people, the Jews, because of these words. And over and over we see this pattern in John's Gospel. They see Jesus, they hear from Jesus. Some say, surely he must be the Christ. Others say, he's a madman, not this man, and there is a division. Some of you know this only too well in your own family, or in your circle of friends, in your place of work, that people divide on the person of Jesus. And we see it in John 11, even after the resurrection of Lazarus, there is a division. Many believed in him, but some went to the Pharisees to tell on Jesus, to tattle on Jesus, to get Jesus into trouble. Some believed, but some said, we'd better tell the Pharisees. And ultimately, there are only two categories. Belief or unbelief? Look at the division here, verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. Verse 46. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. It doesn't say that there was a third group that said, I like him, I think he's great, but I don't agree with him on everything. No, you either believed or you didn't. And it's still the truth today. You believe or you disbelieve. And ultimately you're on one side of the divide or the other. You can straddle the fence for a time and it is a process for many people to come to faith. I'm not discounting that. I have three questions this morning from the text about belief and unbelief. And I trust that by considering these questions preaching the gospel to ourselves every day, we're drawn to the Son of God again. Or maybe for the very first time, we're drawn to the Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. It is possible to live your whole life looking like you believe in, like you believe, but not believing in Jesus, the Son of God. So the three questions from this text. Have you closed your eyes to the power of God. Because this division is happening amongst those who saw the very same thing. They had seen the very same thing with their eyes. So many of them, verse 45, who had come with Mary, these were the ones who came to comfort Mary. Maybe they were professional mourners. Maybe they were friends or family. Maybe they know Mary and Martha and Lazarus. But they have come and seen what Jesus has done. Let's just remind ourselves what Jesus had done. 
He hadn't preached a sermon. He had raised a dead man back to life. So many believed in him, but then it says, but some. So, so who are the some? Well, we have to conclude that they come from the same group of people. Some of the same people who saw Lazarus hop from the grave. Remember, he hopped because he was bound. They went to the Pharisees and said, well, get a load of this. Now, this is mind-blowing, but we understand this from our own experience. People can witness the same thing. We grow up in the same household. We can listen to the same teaching and go two very different directions. But these were witnesses. They had seen Lazarus. They had smelt Lazarus. They had smelt the decomp decomp decomposing flesh. They saw the stone in front of the tomb. They heard Jesus pray to heaven. They were there when Jesus said, Lazarus, outside. They saw Jesus, they saw Lazarus hop out of the grave. They were there when the men sort of unwrapped him. They saw that with their own two eyes. And some believed and some didn't. And not only did they not believe, they found in Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead an opportunity to get him into trouble. Really? Pharisees, check this out. You're not going to believe what we just saw. Now think about how that reflects on the nature of unbelief. You can see a miracle and still not believe. I think many times we think, you know, that we live in the 21st century and, you know, we have all these things, you know, we have so much more than other people didn't have in previous centuries. You know, we have bicycles, we have cars, we have electri electricity. And we think that in the Bible, they were used to seeing miracles all the time. If we saw Jesus, we would believe. There's no question about it. Absolutely no question about it. Are you sure? How many signs did they see from the Lord Jesus and some did not believe. They saw a dead man come back to life. And not only that, you can believe in miracles, even see a miracle, except a miracle happened and still not believe. There's no evidence that they doubted what they saw. I don't think they went to the Pharisees and said, something strange happened, but we have a natural explanation for it. You know, Richard, you know, um, you know, Richard Dawkins early early guy coming, I've got a natural explanation for it. He was just sleeping actually, he was really tired and uh, he was without food and he had a sealed off tomb, he was wrapped in grave clothes and he started to decompose, but that's only because he was tired. Now, they weren't trying to find a natural explanation for it. They didn't discount it, they didn't say it was a magic trick, they saw a miracle. Even the council, the Sanhedrin, recognised that Jesus did it because they said he keeps doing these things. As if he, was keep, he kept robbing houses. Or he, you know, he, kept, he, he keeps burglaring the shop. No, he was raising Lazarus from the dead. They knew the other signs. With a multiplying of the loaves and fishes, the water into wine, the raising of the man's daughter. They had signs and they did not believe. You see, I think we like to think that we're rational that we're rational people. But really, we are rationalising 
creatures. There's a difference. Rationalising creatures look for facts to confirm what they want to believe. You see it all over. All over. You know, if you go on social media, which I certainly don't advise you do, but if you do, you see all over people not looking for objective truth, but looking for things to support what they want to believe. So people aren't rational, they're rationalising creatures. And that's why it's hard for people to really change their minds. They have decided that Jesus was dangerous. They decided that Jesus was an imposter. They decided that Jesus was a rabble-rouser. They decided that Jesus was a blasphemer. They decided Jesus was a threat to their power and their privilege. Whatever he did would confirm their conclusions. If he shows kindness and mercy to sinners, then when he's a friend of sinners and tax collectors. If he performs a miracle on the Sabbath, he's a lawbreaker, he's breaking the law. He's breaking the law. If he brings a dead man back to life, he's going to get us into trouble with the Romans. Oh my goodness. Whatever he did, they concluded he was no good. That's how many have approached Christianity. They've decided what they're going to conclude. That's what many people think about biblical Christians. That they are weird, they are out there, they've already decided what they're going to conclude. Please, please, don't close your eyes to the power of God because of what you think you already know. Are you doing everything you can to push aside what your ears have heard, your eyes have seen, what your heart has felt? Telling yourself that answers to prayer didn't really happen. Telling yourself that all those people who you grew up with, who loved you, who evidenced a changed life to you, were actually, they were only bigots. Don't trust them. Or think that the church just was a great big conspiracy theory. The conspiracy theory before this latest conspiracy theory. You know, I, I saw the Da Vinci Code, I'm sure that's true. It was a novel. But some people believe it was true. But it's a novel. But most of all, people push away their own sense of sin. In the quiet moments of the night, when you know you need a saviour. When you know that you're not the way you're supposed to be. That you know you just can't brush it aside and just say, well, no one's perfect. Because you know how deeply you're not perfect. Are you doing whatever you can to close your eyes to the power of God? They saw miracles, but they squinted hard enough not to see Jesus. That's the first question. The second one is, we see a, or a statement really, we see a hardening of heart here to the Son of God. If you understand what's going on here at the end of John 11, some of the onlookers went and told the Pharisees. And then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council. The Pharisees had no authority to take judicial action. The Pharisees were the teachers. They were, of the day, they were the popular preachers. They were the experts of the law. They were scribes. They were serious about the Torah. And they were popular with the people. 
Pharisees. Then you had the Sanhedrin, the council, which was dominated by priests. It was the highest judicial body in Judea. But ultimately, underneath the authority of the Romans, the Romans gave the power to the Sanhedrin, the authority over the spiritual religious affairs of Judea. So they would start to chatter and murmur and come together. And we see that in verse 47. The chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we going to do? This man performs many signs. And then verse 48, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. They feared that there would be a popular movement, messianic movement, around Jesus. This would attract the attention of the Romans, who were not fond of you know, trouble. They'd seen this pattern before, and they would attract thousands of people, a large following. And maybe they would mount a guerrilla campaign to overthrow the Roman rule. Was it going to be this great political leader to get the Romans off their back and install a proper king in Jerusalem? So they feared these messianic pretenders because they wanted the protection, they wanted the privilege of the Roman rule. So the Jewish council can see this. They get together. If he keeps doing this, people are going to start believing him. The Romans are going to come then. And what are they going to do? They'll take away our place and our nation. And our place is the temple. This is the second temple. They'll wipe away the temple and our nation. We'll see in a few moments that they're very right about things that they didn't even know they were right about. Jesus always upsets your nation because he is higher than any nation. Jesus and allegiance to his name and his rule and his kingdom is always going to run into some conflict. No, what a, no matter what nation we are a part of, they understand this is a threat. They don't understand the way which it is a threat, but they fear the Romans and they know that Jesus spells trouble for them. But what they really fear is that Jesus will be a threat to their position and their privilege. Who are these people? They're the Pharisees, they're the chief priests, they're the council, they're the religious leaders, the, the religious experts. They're the people at the top of the Jewish food chain. And they realise that Jesus could upset that. Jesus is not a revolutionary, as we think of political revolutionaries. He was never out to overthrow the system, but Jesus always upsets the status quo. That is why in the Gospel, Jesus is oftentimes bad news for rich people and good news for poor people. It's not a sin to be rich. Abraham was rich. Job was rich. Joseph of Arathamea was rich, but when Jesus comes and upsets the status quo, it means that in general, the people who are on top think, I might not be on top anymore. And the people who are on bottom think, when Jesus comes, I might not be at the bottom anymore. So the people who perceive themselves as being on the bottom say, I would like some of that Jesus. And the people on the top start elbowing themselves and saying, this Jesus is going to upset everything that I have. You see, if you're poor in spirit, you say, Jesus can change my life. But when you're haughty in spirit, when you're proud, you say with fear, Jesus will change my life. 
One is good news and the other is fear. But both understand that when Jesus comes, things never remain the same. Now here comes Caiaphas. And we read in verse 49 that he was high priest that year. The high priest was supposed to serve a life term until he died. That year, well was it the high priest that fateful year? The year of the crucifixion? Or was it a reference around this time the high priest, as happened so often with political offices, was bought and sold and people were in and out? Was there political intrigue? But whatever the case, he was the high priest now. And you notice how the council cloaks their disdain for the Lord Jesus with the zeal for public good. We're, we're just interested in public welfare. We're just interested in human, flour human flourishing. We just want our nation to go well. And we just think that Jesus is going to be trouble for the nation. And Caiaphas gives them quite a put down. You know nothing at all. And even when you read it, it sounds you know, fairly stern, but in the Greek it means you're clueless. He said, you know, you're clueless. This is the way that the Sanhedrin sometimes spoke, especially the chief priests. Sort of rudeness is how Josephus characterises it. He is frustrated, and by the end of the chapter, after Caiaphas's speech, they have crossed a threshold. No turning back, because on, on verse 53... From that day on, they made plans to put him to death. And now they're actively seeking his ar to arrest him. The third Passover mentioned in John's Gospel is the Passover that led into Holy Week. In John's Gospel, we're halfway through the book, but we're in the last week of Jesus' life. This is no ordinary biography. No ordinary biography spends half a book on the end, last week of the man's life. But Jesus' mission was bound up in his suffering and his death. So they're looking for him. They're not seeking to arrest him to put him on trial. They're seeking to arrest him because they have determined that he is guilty. Their hearts are hard. Some of these people had seen Lazarus brought back to life. But somehow in their sinful calculation they went from he brought a dead man back to life. Therefore, we should kill him. That's what happens with hard hearts. The Puritan said, the same sun that melts the butter also hardens the clay. And that is that the word of God, which makes some hearts respond and embrace Jesus, that same gospel message makes some people hard, as they harden their hearts. And they may have gone to the Pharisees in a moment of eager anticipation to tell their leaders what happened. But by the end of this, the leaders have come together and they're ready to murder Jesus. Unbelief is never neutral. Unbelief does not stay neutral very long. John Calvin says the resurrection of Lazarus ought undoubtedly to have softened even the hardest heart of stone. For there's no work of God which impiety will not infect and corrupt by the bitterness of its position. Many have convinced themselves that it isn't Jesus that they're opposed to. You, see, you hear many people say, I love Jesus, I just don't, I have, I have a problem with, his, with, with, the, with the church. Or, I, 
I love Jesus, but I, I just don't like organised religion. But if you're honest with yourself and you're honest with your Bible, perhaps a large deal of your angst is with Jesus. The claims he makes, the allegiance he demands, the worship that he calls us to, with his unyielding allegiance to the scriptures. Jesus, do not harden your hearts to Jesus. And the third, for all of us, have you considered the folly of unbelief? Irony is not coincidence. There's a well-known song called, Isn't It Ironic? And the song didn't have any irony in it. Maybe that's the ultimate irony, that it was a song about irony that has no irony. Because rain on your wedding day is unfortunate, not ironic. Unless you're marrying a weatherman, perhaps. But in the 18th century, for example, in some churches in Scotland, there were chairs for church discipline. Did you know that? There were chairs for church discipline. That was called the repentance chair, where the sinner who was coming to be admonished and to give a public display of penitence and sorrow for sin would sit. And there's a story that a nobleman was coming to a church and he thought, well, I'm a very important person. Where do I sit? Surely I must sit up front. And he went and sat in the repentance chair. How fitting to think, this is my seat of honour. We think we're claiming the seat of honour. But God says you do not know what that chair is for. And in a gospel filled with double meanings, and I want to close with this, this section is thick with irony. And I think it's important to see. And what I mean with irony is that this section is filled with meaning on a human level, but there is a much deeper and higher meaning on the divine level. You see, over and over again, we see people posturing. We see people saying something. People planning something. And underneath it all, God is saying something very different. God is working on a different purpose. You see, we think they thought on the human level, that they are so smart, so clever. And God says, you have no idea. We think, the world thinks, that they have great plans to thwart God. We see it today by trying to take what God has created and make it something horrible. And then say, people think all over that they are God. I saw something this week, they're trying to make an embryo out of a monkey, aren't they, or something? They have no idea. People think they have great plans and purposes to thwart God. But did you see all the double meanings in this text? The Jewish leaders wanted to avoid the destruction of the temple. So they said, we'll get rid of Jesus. But in a generation... In 70 AD, their temple would be lost and they would be cast out. The gathering of the Sanhedrin and all of their, these people to kill Jesus, that resulted in the gathering of God's children unto Christ. What man does in his, his own stupid intelligence, God uses 
for his own glory. Verse 55, the Passover of the Jews. Many went up from the country of Jerusalem from the country to Jerusalem to purify themselves. They're going for ritual purification when of all people they're most sullied by sin and unbelief. But even more obviously in this text, and John points this out, Caiaphas made a prophecy. He made a prophecy. And as he prophesied, God said something very different. Caiaphas is shrewd. He doesn't mention Jesus by name. But his argument is devilishly simple. If he goes, we live. That's Caiaphas' argument. Jesus is going to get the attention of the Romans. He will be a messianic pretender. I prophesied this earlier, is what he said, that there would be one man to die for the nation. So is it not better if he goes, we live? Do you see the irony? Caiaphas, John who's writing the Gospel, understand that Jesus' death will be a substitution. That Jesus would die in place of the nation. That's why he says in verse 51, he didn't say this of his own accord, but being high priest for a year, that year he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Now Caiaphas was thinking about the Jewish dispersion. That's what they meant about the children scattered abroad, the Jewish diaspora. We know from John 10, 16, the children scattered abroad are the Gentiles who are going to come in. So Caiaphas at some point, who gives this great word as high priest, and here one man is going to die for the nation. One man will die that our nation may be free. And if this one man dies, that can be the mean that the Jewish people can be gathered together again. What he's thinking is that Jesus, this messianic pretender, we will kill to save our nation. He thought he would push his own prophecy. And God in heaven laughs. Caiaphas, you could be not, you could be, you could not be more wrong, but you could not be more right. Because Jesus will die. Jesus did die for the nation. And Jesus is the means by which the children of God come unto me. Calvin said, Caiaphas spoke with two tongues. He vomited out the wicked and cruel design of putting Christ to death, which he had conceived. But God turned his tongue to a different purpose, so that under these ambiguous words, he uttered a prediction. That's why I ask, have you considered the folly of unbelief? Unbelief was not the first word in the world, and unbelief will not have the last word in the world. There is a divine plan you cannot thwart, the world cannot thwart, and sin will never conquer. Sin will not have the last word, unbelief will not have the last word. Caiaphas was at the pinnacle of power and prestige. He uttered a prophecy, and all the people listened and nodded and said, we will do it. His purpose was to carry forth, and they would put Jesus to death. And in doing what his wicked heart has designed to do, he fulfilled God's great purpose on earth. Jesus will not go until his appointed hour. We see that. He laid down his life. The, 
The entire plan is God's, not man's. But at their most sinister, when they thought they were being most clever, when they thought that they were being most gotcha, they were being a pawn. They were being used by God to work out his plan of redemption. That should make us fear and tremble and believe. At their narrowest, they were working to achieve God's global purposes. Unbelief will never prosper because Jesus is king. Jesus is awaiting no referendum, no election. It will not change one iota whether I follow him, whether, I, whether you follow him, or whether your children follow him. He will be king. He is king. And he's coming again. And he's going to judge the living and the dead. And every knee, every knee, even the knee that shakes its fist at God today, will one day bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. Brothers and sisters, my dear friend, unbelief will not have the last word. Unbelief will not have the last word. For some, in that moment, it will be the greatest climax that they gave their lives to. But for others, it will be profound resignation. The one that I spurned, the one I laughed at, the one I rejected, I see now it is too late. He was the Son of God. In John 9, the man born blind, if you're in Christ, know two things. God loves you and he knows what he is doing. Remember that? Now let me say to you, even if you're not in Christ, God still knows what he is doing. Whether we're with him or against him, he's working out his purposes. And even in this most grievous act, the crucifixion of the Son of God, God's plan from all eternity for his own glory for the salvation of his people will go forward. Unbelief will not have the last word. I want you believer, if you're a believer, I want you to take heart. That however you think, however bad you think things are, unbelief is not going to have the last word. Because the victory has been won. And if you're not a believer, I encourage you, I implore you, I plead with you to repent. And put your trust in Jesus and believe that he is the Son of God. I pray that for you, for you personally, that belief will have the last word, not unbelief. May the Lord bless the word. Amen. For his glory, amen.